Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rank List. I'm your host, Alex Gilston, and I have a wonderful guest on this week's show. His name's Ethan, and he is going to introduce to you what the theme is. So, as usual, we're just going to get right on into it. Hello. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. So it's, it's a nice day out. Getting through um, lockdown 3.0. Yeah, I'm uh, coping. I think is is the best I, I can think say. If if you're coping, I think that's the best thing that you could possibly be doing. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so why don't you tell me what you have picked as today's list? Yeah, so uh, I picked 90s movies. Um, I guess, I think if I was to write down a list of like my top 50 films of all time, I would say that probably of all the decades, the 90s would be the, the most represented. Um, I think when I started kind of getting into films as like, I'm, you know, more than just kind of go, like watching films, I started getting interested in the craft and kind of filmmakers and the history of film and stuff. Um, the 90s was kind of my jumping off point. Um, I don't want to spoil the list, but a lot of the directors from that era are kind of among my favourites. And um, there's a lot of like great books. Uh, Rebels on the Backlot was kind of a, a really big uh, kickoff for me. It's a book about kind of the history of indie movies in the 90s and the kind of revolution around that time. Uh, there's also other ones and really cool video essays about that era too, which kind of just like, you know, there's a lot to dive into uh, and it was you know, quite accessible. When I was putting my list together, um, it just like, there's so many films. I mean, it's such a big, all-encompassing kind of um, uh, theme and there's just so much to choose from, from all different kinds of walks of filmmaking. Um, yeah. And I will admit uh, that most of mine are from one particular walk of filmmaking, but we'll, we'll get onto that when we, when we move on. We're going to start off with number five and I, I'll just, I'll let you take it away. So if you want to say um, what, what the film is and, and why you've picked it as in the number five slot. Yeah, so my number five, um, I guess this was the hardest one because I think like doing top five in general is just like really difficult because you've got to really whittle it down. And, you know, when you're thinking like top 10 or even top 20, you can kind of, you can put a lot of stuff in there and the order doesn't matter as much because at the end of the day like it's the top 20 but top five is like the cream of the cream and I couldn't really do a list of 90s films without uh, having Toy Story 2 uh, which is the first film I think I ever liked um, you know when you're a kid sort of any film is just entertainment but it's the first film that I ever kind of was like I like that one I used to I think I probably wore the videotape out I used to watch it all the time uh, I went to see it when it came out at the cinema um, when I was I would have been about three and I think I was too scared to sit through it the first scene with like Buzz Lightyear um, going through the like weird dark thing to find Emperor Zerg um, I couldn't sit through it because it was too like too tense for a three-year-old but <laughs> since then it's like one of those it's one of those films where obviously you can watch it as a kid and you can like appreciate the fact that it's toys and like you know one's a cowboy and one's a spaceman or whatever uh, but then as you as you kind of age, it, it grows with you. You get more of the references. I think in terms of like, it's, a, it's quite a meta film if you like really think about it. Like obviously there's the whole idea of, you know, the toys 
are representing like human issues which you don't really understand as a kid but then also the references to other films whether that's like 2001 a space odyssey with the the noises at the beginning or uh darth vader and star wars before i really got into that um so i think like it kind of it, it, psychologically it might have inspired my interest in film later on in life but i think just in general it's super entertaining and funny and holds up even to this day i think it was like a it, it's kind of the balance of pixar I, i'm i do love pixar films but i think sometimes you have to they make a choice whether they're making like the entertaining one or the deep one and i think um toy story is kind of proof that you can do both in one in one film and i think that's kind of one of the main reasons i still like it to this day definitely i think toy story as well is in a very small um exclusive list of um sequels that are potentially better than the first as well yeah definitely i i 100% agree um i don't know if thinking toy story 2 is the best one is controversial i some i mean i don't know i've seen lists that put it at the bottom but i definitely think it's the best i think i think with toy story saying that any of them are the best is kind of controversial because they're all so good yeah um maybe bar people saying toy story 4 even though i quite i quite enjoy that as well i think overall toy story as a franchise is just perfect like i don't i don't think there's a bad film there but definitely you know in the 90s toy story was you know when it was first kicking off and when you know it was as big as it was then i think that's when that's where the nostalgia comes from and the kind of like that's what kicked everything off yeah and i think like i think toy story 4 is kind of like a perfect example of what i was saying with kind of pixar making a choice about whether they're going to do like a deep film or a kind of more entertaining one in that you know the kind of emotional core of toy story 4 i think is quite similar to toy story 3 like it's it's about the toys getting left behind and about and about that kind of thing that which i think was more effective in toy story 3 because of the age of the people watching it you know like i watched that film when i was toy story 3 at least when i was probably 16 or 17 and you're at that age where you know the the stuff that's going on with andy is like relevant to you um Whereas I found Toy Story 4 to be a more immediately entertaining film and like the, the kind of set pieces were better, I suppose. But, the you know, something like Soul or Inside Out definitely has more of like an emotional heft. But yeah. I think Toy Story 2 is equally as emotional as, as Inside Out or Soul. Yeah, definitely. I think it could also be argued as well that like, uh, you know, people who watched Toy Story 3 when they were younger, uh, you know, at, at eight, nine, ten years old, when they watched Toy Story 3, 4, in the cinema that I suppose that same emotional weight that we felt when we watched Toy Story 3 and I suppose that's why it kind of is so good in the fact that it transcends all kind of generation in a way that it can yeah definitely it's universal to literally anybody who watches it yeah and I think I think the the best that's like the best part of a lot of kind of nostalgia and, and the reason why nostalgic films or the reason why the best nostalgic films hold up is because you know you can appreciate Toy Story if you watch them as they're being released, but then also you can just binge all four of them back to back and they're super entertaining and funny. And, you know, I think that's probably the reason why I'll literally watch Tom Hanks reading the phone book is because he is just always the voice of Woody in my head and I will watch him do anything just because of that kind of childhood, like memories. We're going to move on to my number five now. Um, and uh, just going back to what you said about how like 90s films was kind of how you got into uh, you know, when you were, were getting into films more and, and focusing on films. I would personally say that my 
um, film taste is a lot more contemporary. Uh, when I started getting into films, I was more intrigued on watching like the the more current stuff. So bar some of the kids films that came out in the 90s, I hadn't really watched that many um, films from the 90s that I remember anyway, at least. Um, but one that I watched recently, which I was completely blown over by because I am kind of getting around to watching everything now. Um, now I'm just on a, and I'm on a roll. Uh, but one that particularly stays with me is Being John Malkovich. Um, so that is at number five for me. I, <laughs> it is a completely just, I mean, I don't think I can explain, to be honest. It, it's just so strange and so wonderful and so kind of, I think the best thing about it is how inexplainable it is. Like, you just go and watch it and you kind of have to accept exactly what's happening in the movie. And it's just a bit of a ride, really. Um, and I love John Malkovich anyway. I think he's brilliant in everything he does, um, particularly Red. I really enjoy him in that film, in the in those films. He's really, really good in there. Um, and yeah, and, and also I think it does say something as well. And I really do um, like Charlie Kaufman. And um, I think out of all of the Charlie Kaufman films I've watched, that's probably one of my favourite ones. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I love that film too. That I, I probably wrote out a list of like 20 films that could have been in this top five and that would have definitely been one of them. I think Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones fall into a category of directors I love um, that kind of produced their best work, I think, in the 2000s or, or the 2010s. Um, but I mean, that film, like you say, it's a complete like head spin of a film. I think there's a great video essay that I watched recently about uh, it's basically why all films from 1999 are the same. And um, it kind of falls into this tradition of like miserable white men who are stuck in a desk job. You know, if you look at like Fight Club or another film that I'm going to talk about on this list later or American Beauty, which obviously won the Oscar. It was a kind of time in American history where everything was going OK for white men. There was no wars really going on. There was no 9-11 yet. And so the filmmakers were kind of wondering what the conflict was. And I guess the conflict for everyone was that they were bored of their nine to five. And so many filmmakers took inspiration from that. And I think Charlie Kaufman, I mean, I guess a bit of the background on this film is that he he was writing a sitcom at the time, but he was, it was later in the season. So he was basically writing from the perspective of the person who created the sitcom. And in his head, he was like, I'm never gonna be as good as the person who invented this. Why am I even bothering? And he came up with this idea of like, what if you could live inside someone else's head? And I guess that is the kind of premise of being John Malkovich and then just, the, all the Charlie Kaufmanisms in it are like, yeah. I think that's him at him at his best. I'm I I do like Charlie Kaufman, but I do sometimes feel like he values um, weirdness over story or like entertainment yeah. value. And I think you know something like Eternal Sunshine is him is absolute zenith because that film is amazing. Yeah. But then you get into like the 2010s and you look at like Synecdoche, New York and even um, the one he did last year on Netflix, which I can't remember the name. I'm thinking of it. I found him a bit bored. Yeah. yeah, I found him a <clears> bit <throat> kind of, I don't know, like he was showing you how smart he was. Yeah, I think being John Malkovich in its in of itself is a lot more substantial than, than those films in the fact that it just feels a little more fleshed out. And like you said, it doesn't feel like he's kind of just looking at us and going, yeah, look, I can do this, I can do that, I can do this in it. Yeah. It feels a bit more, I suppose, authentic. 
Yeah, and I think Spike Jones is like a huge part of that because obviously he, yeah, his definitely. background was um, commercials and music videos, which are mediums where the script is like completely un- or almost completely unimportant. So he is a he's a very visual and like uh, storytelling uh, filmmaker, which I think complements Charlie Kaufman's tendency to kind of like disappear inside a script. And I think you can definitely draw a line in the sand between when Charlie Kaufman started directing his own work is when it kind of got a bit it got a bit beyond me personally but um other people like we're going to take a break from the list and we're going to go for our worst picks now it's quite good because a a a theme that has so many films that you could choose from there are just as many bad films as there are good ones to pick from. Um, And I went with, and I don't know whether this would be controversial. I'm not sure because I feel like whenever I talk to people about this film, they always kind of generally say that they enjoy it. Uh, But my worst pick from the 90s is Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Wow. And (laughs) so I feel like, it probably is quite controversial. Um, but if I was being very honest, I find that film painfully unfunny. Um, I think that Jim Carrey... I, I prefer Jim Carrey in other roles that we will talk about later on. Um, it, it kind of just feels one note like all the rest of his films um, that are meant to be funny. Um, where performances um, in like Bruce Almighty are just 10 times better than in this film. Um, the story is just like, eh. and overall, it's just it's just really not for me. But again, I don't know whether that's a controversial opinion or not. I don't think it's, I mean, I saw that film when I was really young and I've not really watched it since. And I think I liked it when I was really young. And it's one of the, I think a lot of the time, you know, going back to the whole Toy Story thing, like nostalgia can blind people into thinking certain things are better than they are. And I think that is one of them. In, in general, I think Jim Carrey is probably like the best comedic actor of all time. His just the, what he can do with his face is more than what a lot of actors can do with, you know, much better material. I think he elevates everything that he's in. Like, you know, if Nick Cage was, I mean, maybe Nick Cage would be better in Ace Ventura. I think that would probably be even funnier. But, you know, certain other actors from that era in in that film probably wouldn't have elevated it to the to the kind of watchable level that it is but I yeah I tend to agree I don't think it's one of his best I think you know even if you look at the other kind of like slapstick stuff he was doing around them like the mask or something like that that is a lot better um but you know big big Jim Carrey fan less of a fan of Ace Ventura yeah the rhino scene is funny though (laughs) yeah I um I don't I don't want to say that I'm not a fan of Jim Carrey because I am a fan of Jim Carrey. I actually um I think I remember thinking that I wasn't a fan of Jim Carrey and then looking through his filmography and going, yeah, that's just not true. That I, yeah. I feel like, you know, he's a, a person that has done so many performances um that there's always gotta be at least one that you're gonna like. Um but yeah, we'll talk about that. A bit, a bit later on. Anyway, what is your worst pick from the nineties? I, I'd have to double check this because I've not seen it in a while. But I think we're also going to be talking about Jim Carrey in this one. It, my answer is Batman and Robin. I think he's the Riddler in this one, right? 
I'm going to check up on that. But um, yeah, I get mixed I, up. The two, the two Joel Schumacher Batman films, just like I mean, R.I.P. Joel Schumacher and all that. But they're not his, not his finest work. I don't think. I don't think anyone's, you know, controversially putting Batman and Robin as their number one Batman film of all time because I don't think it really <laughs> appeals to anyone. Like I can see. I mean. I guess superheroes in if you really kind of boil it down to the basics they are kind of ridiculous like you know they're men in tights who fight crime and Batman especially dresses as a bat and you know so I can see I can make an argument for why the Adam West ones are good I can make an argument for the Tim Burton ones because that definitely suits his taste like Tim Burton's directorial taste and aesthetic taste I can definitely make an argument for the um, Christopher Nolan ones because they're my personal favourite this just is, sits in some weird middle ground where you can definitely tell that he, Joel Schumacher, has an appreciation for the kind of Adam West, like Biff Bang Power ones. But he was kind of dealing with the the toolbox that um, Tim Burton had set up and it and it just doesn't go. It's it's a bad film. The back credit card, the you know, the kind of weird like sculpted packages on all the all the male superheroes, the kind of over sexualization of the female ones, not not for me and i don't think it's really for anyone no i don't um so it wasn't batman and robin the villain is actually mr freeze who's played by yeah okay um obviously uh jim carrey was in batman forever um yeah but no i think when it comes to batman and robin the one thing i always think of is arnold schwarzenegger as um as mr freeze and how uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger did to Mr. Freeze uh, what James Corden does to every iconic character that he has ever played in a Hollywood film. <laughs> I feel yeah. like Mr. Freeze now is a an incredibly underutilized villain in the Batman universe because in the comics and in uh, certain other adaptations like Gotham, it's such a good villain. He's really, really great. Um, but all anyone ever remembers is is uh, from Batman and Robin, which is a, a crying shame. But in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, definitely. It was a weird, I think one of the reasons I like the 90s and one of the reasons why I think it's like a really cool era for film is because a lot of the kind of the guys from the past two decades, so that's like Arnold Schwarzenegger being one of them, were finding it really hard to pull off the same shtick again because they'd been so successful in the 70s and 80s and now audiences wanted something different. And I think the idea of casting someone like him in like a villain role because he traditionally plays the hero, I guess, and especially in like one where he's basically completely in makeup is a cool idea and one that I think with a better script and perhaps more uh, you know convincing visuals might have worked but he you know he really like hams it up in that I, yeah terrible so we're going to go back to the list now and we're going to kick it off with uh, number four take it away Cool. So my number four, again, like you said, with uh, being John Malkovich is a film that from the 90s I didn't watch until last year. It's The Matrix. Um, I think a bit of background. I would describe myself as a cautious sci-fi fan. Um, I like a lot of it and I grew up watching Star Wars and kind of, you know, the the imagery of of sci-fi was very appealing to me. But I think as I've gone back and watched the classics, I've I've found a lot of them to be quite underwhelming. you know, like, I think I watched Blade Runner for the first time and I was like, is this what everyone's raving about? Like, it's fine. I think other people have done it better. And then even modern ones, like recently, uh, I guess like Annihilation, stuff like that, where it's billed as being thought provoking. Um, I find it to be kind of, you know, there's other stuff I prefer 
how, so uh, as a result of that, I kind of put off watching The Matrix for a long time. Uh, my girlfriend's a big fan and uh, she convinced me to watch it. And it's the best sci-fi film of all time, I think. I think unquestionably changed the game for like action and sci-fi. It's thought provoking and above all entertaining. Um, and it just holds up. Like it's a, it's a film that's 20, over 20 years old. And you could, if you told me it was released like last week, I'd believe you. It changed, I think it changed the game for everything as well. Like, I don't think you'd see the X-Men in like black leather outfits if it weren't for the Matrix. Um, you know, obviously some of the, I think the first one is obviously the best, like everyone knows that. And I think some of the criticisms that came from two and three about the kind of overuse of CGI and maybe the bad CGI is aged quite badly. But I think the fact that the Wachowskis had such a low budget for the Matrix and the fact that a lot of it is practical effects and real sets and just kind of uh, a really surprisingly simple story um, is, is the film's greatest strength. And it's, yeah, it's one of my all time favorites and a recent addition to that list, which I thought was quite rare for, for an older film. Well, funnily enough, I have actually only just watched The Matrix very recently for the first time. Um, and I completely agree with everything you say. Um, it is an incredible film. Um, and I just think, uh, and I think another thing as well to look at is um, now in kind of retrospect, looking what the uh, Wachowskis have been through in their personal life as well, and how that kind of translates as well in itself into The Matrix um, is also incredible. Um, and to think that that they were kind of sort of putting across that message while making that film, while also going through that in their personal lives, um, is 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 really good. And you're right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the camp that like the kind of campiness of it with um, the kind of all the leather and all that kind of stuff really works, um, and probably did pave the way actually for um, for a lot of superhero films um, going forward. Yeah, that's good. yeah. I, I think um, it's it's another one of the kind of like desk job films where like Keanu Reeves' character obviously starts off his life kind of you know be in that in that position, and then you you find this like elaborate world. Um, but again, you know, with what the Wachowskis have been through, and obviously like being transgender and going through all that, it's a, it's a deeply misunderstood film. I think you know the, the kind of whole idea that being red pilled has been like absorbed by the alt right is like one of the most hilarious ironies ever it's a, it's up there with like people thinking fight club is about fighting and that's starting real fight clubs like it's, it's the same kind of thing where but i think it's i mean not to give these people any like kind of credibility but i think that's the reason why it's such a good film is because it can be appreciated on this surface level of like you know keanu reeves in leather fights people but then if you really kind of break it down and think about the context of when it was released and and like say retrospectively knowing what the creators have been through and the fact that it was a low budget high concept action film that changed the game is just incredible. And I think it's like, yeah, it's amazing. Definitely. Okie dokie. Moving on to my number four, uh, quite similar to um, to uh, your pick at number five, I have gone for Toy Story. That first Toy Story. Um, now, the reason I picked the first Toy Story over the second one, uh, even though I enjoy, I, I enjoy them both completely equally, um, it's really just down to the fact that obviously Toy Story is what started the kind of um, the the computer generated animation kind of boom, basically, uh, because, of course, in the 90s, the, the Disney was going through its renaissance and it was kind of um, 
it, it was a good time. You know, they were releasing hit after hit after hit. And I think that's what people wanted. But then when Pixar released Toy Story, it was something completely different. Um, and the fact that in the 90s, back in, I think it was 93 or 4 when it, when it first released Toy Story, um, and how... Um, incredible it even looked and I, I know that uh, some of the animations of the, uh, the the humans in that weren't necessarily incredible but um, but they obviously say themselves that they actually at that point weren't able to animate humans properly yet but how they could just perfectly animate all of these different toys and, and that kind of world is just so incredible to me and without that film we wouldn't have all of the Pixar films that we have now. We also wouldn't have films like Wreck-It Ralph, Moana, uh, Tangled, all of those kind of films, which I think are absolutely perfect as well. Um, and overall, it's just great. And it again, it has that nostalgia completely dripped over it as well, like with uh, a lot of films from the 90s, um, a lot of kids' films from the 90s for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a perfectly, you know, I, I wouldn't ever kind of knock someone for having the first Toy Story above the second one um I think just for me it's like personal like say nostalgia um but yeah it, it definitely changed the game and I think um it was a it was a stroke of genius to like choose toys as the kind of characters in the film because like you say they are easier to animate than humans and it's instantly appealing to kids but you can kind of put this deeper story behind it and I think in a way like obviously I know there was sort of in quotes cartoons for adults before Toy Story but I think it definitely changed the formula in that you can have something that is like overtly for kids you know it's got toys in it but that doesn't age poorly when you look back on it and, and you can still kind of you know it's not necessarily that there are jokes that go over kids heads it's just the the story and the characters are so well-rounded and so perfectly executed that it's hard to for anyone to kind of say that that film's not perfect because it kind of is. Moving on to number three, uh, our number three pick. Why don't you take it away? Cool. So my number three is um, a film that wasn't on the list until I really started, you know, if I was writing down my list off the top of my head, I probably wouldn't have put this so high. But uh, when I was kind of watching some of these and, and going back and, and compiling the perfect order of this top five, it's something that just kept sneaking up, up the list. It was in the top 10 and then it was in the top five. And obviously now it's number three. It's train spotting. Um, there's a, I have a personal story behind this film, which is kind of me and my friend from uni. We uh, saw that the second one was coming out, and we had a student cinema that was in the student union, and the films were dead cheap. It was the best place to go and see kind of newer films a month or two after they came out in normal cinemas. We saw that Train Spotting Two was coming out, and neither of us had seen the first one, so we bought the DVD for like 50p off Amazon watched the first one, immediately got up and walked down to the cinema and watched the second one and then got home at like nine o'clock at night. And I think we both felt like we were on heroin after we watched two train spotting films back to back. It really kind of elevated the experience being slightly delirious watching them. But just on its own, it's, I think, obviously, well, it's the highest, I think, yeah, it's the highest British film on this list. And it's probably my favourite British film ever. It's um, obviously directed by Danny Boyle, who is Scottish. And I don't think anyone, I don't think a non-Scottish person could have, elevated the source material so much um you know it gets spoken about often the kind of 
the visuals in the film take center stage you know the, the part where he crawls into the toilet or the part where he's like uh gone cold turkey and the room is expanding they're like brilliantly crafted set pieces for such a low budget film and really kind of like show Danny Boyle to be the kind of director that we come to know later on but I think it's the character moments that make it so good it's you know the the plot line about their friend who kind of wasn't addicted to heroin that they kind of got hooked on it and seeing his downfall the interplay between all the main the four main characters and seeing their chemistry and then um the kind of just see it like I think it's clear to see why you know Ewan McGregor has ended up being an actor who's had such a great kind of career and, and so many like flirtations with blockbusters because he's just he's brilliant in this film and he plays the, the character that's kind of so humdrum and mundane but also has this like really dark underbelly to him which um, aligns perfectly with the film like the film is is a very kind of slice of life uh, movie elevated by some very cool visuals and a, and a great directing style. Definitely. I remember, um, I, I absolutely love the pick. I, I, Trainspotting is an incredible film. And I remember uh, the first time I ever watched it, uh, I was, it was quite late. I think it was about, must have been about 10, 11 o'clock at night, um, about five or six years ago. Um, and it was on Channel 4 or Film 4, I think. I'm not quite sure. I think it had been on for about 20 minutes. So um, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen the first bit of it. And I, I was definitely meant to be going to bed because I had work in the morning or something like that. Um, and I watched five minutes of it and I remember just being inc- just completely mesmerized by it and just kind of going, right, okay, I've got to watch the rest of this film now. Uh, and obviously I later went back and watched it all the way through kind of without adverts, you know, on, on yeah. uh, broken. Um, and it is just a, an amazing film and everything you say about um, about Ewan McGregor and just the entire cast is is completely completely brilliant as well and the second one is just as good i really really enjoyed the second one as well um and fun fact danny boyle went to a uh high school that is uh 15 minutes down the road from where i live so that's my claim to my claims fame (laughs) (laughs) that's cool um yeah i i agree with what you said about the second one i was kind of you know it's quite rare for an independent such a gritty film to have a sequel obviously there's like a case for it because the books have there's about three books written about these characters so it's not out completely out of nowhere but I was you know it's, it's always a weird one when such a seminal film gets a sequel 20 years after it came out you wonder whether it's a cash grab or whether it's like you know in Danny Boyle's case he's kind of come off the back of maybe some less successful films but it, it perfectly stayed true to the characters and and definitely you know, picked up where the last one left off, even if it was 20 years later. And, and you know, I think that I didn't get to experience this myself because I watched the first two back to back, but you definitely wonder where he is kind of going to end up when he, I mean, spoilers alert, when he takes the money. Um, and the, the second one doesn't, it, it kind of lives up to your expectations. It's not like he kind of, you know, turned his life around and he's fine and he's really rich and stuff like that. Like these characters still have all the demons from their past. And, it, and you know, sometimes films like that, you can kind of sully the reputation of the first one. But I think that first train spot holds up as like a, a perfect British film that can you, that is impossible to mess with. I don't think, however bad the sequel was, I don't think it could have ruined the first one. But the fact they elevated it is even better. Uh, moving on to my number three. Um... 
I I had to include this somewhere just because of again it's it has that complete uh sort of sheer of nostalgia and that is the iron giant so i remember watching the iron giant for the first time when i was a child um i remember just loving it because uh, you know big robot um going around messing about and just having a load of fun and obviously not really comprehending the the bigger meaning behind the story and then obviously the ending where um where the iron giant sacrifices itself uh, to save the town. Well, obviously, watching it back and being able to put the, all the pieces together and knowing that it was a film that I enjoyed watching so much as a child and then being able to appreciate it even more, um, watching it as a as a grown-up was just absolutely incredible. And I hadn't realised this, but as I was doing my research for it, I realised exactly why I loved it so much. And that's because the person who actually made this film, who directed it, was Brad Bird, which I, had, I wasn't aware of. Um, but obviously Brad Bird's done some incredible stuff, including, of course, The Incredibles um, and Ratatouille as well. Uh, and yeah, I think The Iron Giant sits among those perfectly as if one of the best, if not the best uh, film that Brad Bird's ever made. I think it's absolutely great. Um, and I also think that it's quite funny that I didn't realise, um, but The Iron Giant is voiced by Vin Diesel, <laughs> which I didn't realise. So that was quite I cool. never knew that either. Um, so yeah, that, that was really, really fun to find out. Um, but yeah, overall, it's just such a wonderful film. It's got such heart and yeah, I don't think I could have had it not in the list, um, just because of how, how wonderful it is. Yeah. I think like I can, I, I knew that Brad Bird had directed the Iron Giant for just from like random like Wikipedia rabbit holes or whatever, but I think it's definitely in keeping with his style and, and the kind of heart that he injects into films that you wouldn't you know taking it a genre like the kind of or I guess maybe not a genre but a kind of a technological film a film about a robot and, and making it so heartwarming and the same that he did with The Incredibles a film about superheroes or you know I think the apex of that is a film about a rat cooking like mm. that, that you can make that concept that sounds so ridiculous so heartwarming and so like special is definitely testament to like how great he is as a director um you know, Mission Impossible 4 was uh, also Brad Bird, which I think is quite funny. Yeah. Um, I definitely think I love I love films like The Iron Giant, which feel almost like an audition tape for what he would do later on. You yeah. know, the, it, it feels like a kind of spiritual predecessor to what Pixar kind of excelled at since. And I think knowing that Pixar is kind of this organisation where like people work on multiple films at the same time and where you know, directors on one film or writers or producers on another, you can definitely see how Brad Bird has like steered the ship towards just doing more with, with animation and more with kind of 3D animation and, and having more heartwarming stories in Pixar. Cause I think, you know, obviously Toy Story was going that way anyway, but if you look at something like A Bug's Life, it does have that heartwarming feel to it, but it's not at its core. I think at the core, you know, Bug's Life is more of a, it's almost more of like a drama than a than a kind of emotional story but then you know brad bird takes it in that direction yeah great film yeah and uh another film he also did which i believe um i don't think it was quite the 90s but um the fox and the hound as well which is just another completely just heartwarming um film that you know i a complete mess whenever i watch it um 
So, I mean, same with any Brad Bird film, to be honest. Uh, th- there's always that that moment towards the end where you uh, you have a good cry, um, which is always a good thing. Um, but yeah, he's he's such a wonderful creative, and I think um, he's just had such a, a wonderful career, and that's why that's why Iron Giant is there for me. Yeah, and he, I think he, I think like maybe not compared to most animated directors, but uh, he has a really good eye for like a visual moment you know if you think about all of his films there's always that one scene that sticks in your head whether that's in real life like the Burj Khalifa scene in Mission Impossible or something like The Incredibles where you know that you could pick any number of the kind of set pieces from that film I think there's a lot of you know real life action film directors that could learn a lot from watching Brad Bird's films and and what he did with 2D animation in The Iron Giant is amazing. Let's move on to number two. What have you got? So my number two is Seven, the David Fincher film um, from 1997 with Brad Pitt. Um, I think David Fincher is my favourite director. And, you know, there's other directors that I think whose styles I maybe like more or are more unique because I think David Fincher's style is... The fact that he doesn't, he, there is no real style to it. But um, Seven is just this film, which I think is so like grim. It's so like deplete of any kind of joy. It's like th- from the cinematography being like sweaty and like the rooms feeling all like too small and like people are kind of everyone's lying to each other and not telling them what they really think. It's just this film which has this like kind of makes you feel so uncomfortable. Then there's, you know, the plot twist towards the end and stuff like that. But just, I think it's where David Fincher really arrived. Like, I know he'd done Alien 3 before, but this is where he said, like, no, this is this is kind of what I do. And the rest of his 90s output, whether it's Fight Club or um, Panic Room, which I think was in the 2000s, actually, but Fight Club, Panic Room, and then um, uh, The Game. He, he is a director who kind of excels at making you just feel icky the whole time. Um, and he's even brought that to kind of less... Uh, you know, something like The Social Network. It's a, it's a movie about Mark Zuckerberg, but it still has that kind of uncomfortable, grim nature to it. And I think there's no better example than that of Seven. And the fact that he did it early on in his kind of feature filmmaking career is amazing. Um, and then there's just other stuff about it that I love. Like, you know, I think when I watched it for the first time, I was pretty young. I was probably like, it was probably about seven years ago. So I was probably like 17. But I, up until that point, I never knew how good of an actor Morgan Freeman was. Like he's always just been like the voice of God in Bruce Almighty, and you know he's got that he's got that amazing voice, and he's sort of in Batman, but you don't really remember him that much. And then just to see him kind of, yeah, like in a in a real role that gives him emotion and and makes him a fully fledged character and not this kind of meme is is great. And then the same with Brad Pitt. You know, it's a film where I think Brad Pitt. He's, you know, he's obviously so good looking that you think he's just a leading man. But if you look at his his choices in the 90s, he was doing some weird stuff. Like he's a he's the character actor through and through. And I think it's kind of why he won an Oscar for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, for the first time in his career is because Quentin Tarantino realises that, you know, you don't cast Brad Pitt as a kind of good looking leading man. That's not where he excels. He excels at playing these kind of weird side characters, whether that's true romance or... Um, once upon a time in Hollywood but then here in seven when he kind of gets to be a leading man in a really left of centre film 
um, I think it's him at his best and David Fincher at his best and just everyone firing on all cylinders is, is a great film. I, I think it's really, you know, um, a testament to the kind of the rigidity of David Fincher's uh, career from all the way from Seven. Uh, just to, you know, any, any film that David Fincher kind of touches is just, it almost is like he has the Midas touch in, in a way, you know, <clears throat> maybe some aren't as good as others, but he always adds his, his signature flair, whether it be Seven, Fight Club, uh, you know, Gone Girl or The Curious, I mean, I'm a really big fan of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I think that's a great film, um, which I suppose in a way, quite in the opposite sense, isn't necessarily as grim as some of uh, the other films he's worked on. Um, but I think that it's still got his signature style embedded into it. Um, and yeah, I think Seven was kind of like the spiritual, almost spiritual kind of um, beginning of of his journey as a filmmaker. Yeah, he got he. It's kind of like the nebulous of a lot of the ideas that he's had. You know, you you can kind of draw lines from Seven to the themes of Fight Club. You can draw draw lines from Seven to what he eventually did with Zodiac, which I think Zodiac is kind of. It's almost an improvement on Seven in all fronts. It's more polished and I think maybe, you know, it's visually slightly more memorable. But I think the kind of scrappiness of Seven and the fact that, you know, it came off Alien 3, which was like a, a commercial, it's called Flop. And it was him really proving himself and, you know, he had a low budget and, but he got to really just explore like everything he would do later on in his career. And, um, you know, the the he, he he got to kind of experiment with his own style which like i said you know i think a lot of david finch's style is is how stripped back it is the fact that the camera usually moves when people move and and it's very ominous and his subtle uses of cgi and you know i, I think this film more than others with the practical effects of some of the the murders and stuff um yeah it's just classic fincher and and a kind of high point in his career really early on, but one that I think he has exceeded, you know, in, in later films too. Uh, so we're going to move on to my number two now. Now, uh, I mentioned it quite briefly um, uh, when I was talking about Toy Story, but the Disney Renaissance, uh, which happened in the 90s, um, was an incredibly big deal. Um, you know, after, <clears throat> I think, you know, every everyone has always loved Disney animation films, but there was definitely a rut. Um, that they were trying to get out of. And uh, this film that is in uh, the number two spot for me is, uh, you know, part of that, one of those films. Um, and it is my favourite animated movie of all time, without question. Um, and that is The Lion King. Uh, a lot can be said about this film. I mean, just everything about it is so good. I mean, it's literally as described it's like shakespeare but with lions um in in africa and it's just so wonderful the uh, the voice cast is incredible and the uh, the the songs are wonderful as well i mean some of the best original songs in a disney film ever you know can you feel the love tonight hakuna matata uh, just can't wait to be king all of that stuff is just amazing and it is i just <laughs> I have so much love for it. Um, and again, it could be that nostalgia again, but I um, I'm, I think, you know, above that, it is just a perfect film. 
and um, I'm still quite sad with what they did to it in the live action remake because just it really um, unfortunately uh, didn't quite capture the um, the absolute awe of of the original movie and um, and it's it's heart wrenching and it's so uh, emotional but it's also funny and light hearted. Um, you know, some of the characters are some of the most memorable Disney characters of all time, especially Timon and Pumbaa. Um, but yeah, a, a full-on love for, for The Lion King. Yeah, I mean, I think I think with these two lists, you can kind of see where our tastes like diverge. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, it's kind of a joke for me at this point, but I, I didn't really grow up watching Disney films as much. Um, just wasn't, you know, what I was into. And, and as a result, I kind of missed out on a lot of them until I was a bit older. But something like The Lion King is just unquestionably amazing. Like you forget that it's animated. You forget that it's like a quote unquote kids film. It's just like a timeless story and, and like you say, brilliant characters and the, the music is unquestionably great. And it's, you know, it, it's one of those films that kind of earns its, its classic status and was almost like, I, obviously I, I wasn't alive when it came out, but as soon as it was really, it's one of those films where you watch it and you know that that is going to be a classic it's just so well executed and and just like say perfect a perfect animated film and i'll always be happy that um elton john was involved in the making of a um (laughs) of a disney film and the the songs the king the king definitely definitely the king out of the lion king so now before we go on to the grand prize the number one uh, film for us in the 90s I'd like us to do an honourable mention a film that you love from the 90s but didn't quite make the list cool so I had but like obviously I've, I've said I had a list of like 20 films that could have been in this list and I think you know some of the ones from directors that I love that produce their best work a bit later, perhaps um, Boogie Nights, uh, Rushmore, or Boogie Nights from Paul Thomas Anderson, Rushmore, Wes Anderson, um, and then even something like Barton Fink from the Coen Brothers, who I think, you know, the best Coen Brothers film came out in in the 2000s. Um, But I think my number six has got to be Heat, the Michael Mann uh, film starring Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. That was the one that was at number five before I thought train spotting should go on the list and it's one of those films like the matrix that if you just told me it was made yesterday I'd believe you it's it's perfectly timeless it looks super modern still the the kind of use of like digital photography and that was quite ahead of its time and influenced a lot of people to do similar things but I think more than that it was like it's the, the first time Pacino and De Niro had been on screen together since The Godfather 2 and it was a kind of a uh, interesting point in both of their careers where they came up in the 70s with a, lo- a lot of those kind of new Hollywood directors and their careers had reached a point where I think they were being cast in they've been typecast sort of I think Pacino definitely his like 90s output was a bit spotty in terms of him just being asked to play like gangsters all the time and then De Niro maybe not back then but now or, or after Heat in the in the short term after Heat was kind of doing a lot of comedies that that didn't necessarily land like his old stuff did. But I think he is just this moment where the stars aligned perfectly. You had a really exciting director, two great actors, um, and an amazing an amazing plot and, and huge set pieces, um, all filmed in a really modern way that would kind of influence crime movies and just movies in general going forward. 
Okay, so I uh, had a really hard time with this because there are so many films that I could have potentially picked to ha- to hold this spot. Um, uh, films like Casper. Uh, again, a lot of these films are films that I remember watching as a child that just hold that kind of spot in in my mind as as just such wonderful films. Uh, the Matrix was there. Um, James and the Giant Peach could have. Um, got in there somewhere the stop motion animation i uh actually um i credit that film um as the start of my love for stop motion animation which um is still incredibly massive to this day um but a film that i saw that i thought is deserving of the honorable mention um in my opinion um is small soldiers i remember (laughs) I didn't watch this film as a child, which I think is a good thing because it um, basically, I suppose, what you could say is that it's kind of um, a more mature Toy Story in a way, um, in live action. Obviously, um, you know, all these characters, uh, you know, that the soldiers and the aliens, they're fighting against each other and it's kind of... Uh, it's definitely a bit more mature um, than than Toy Story, uh, but I I just have a great time with this movie. I understand that maybe critically, it's not <laughs> it's not the best film, um, but I, I just remember really really enjoying watching it when when I watched it for the first time. Yeah, I just had to Google it. Then I've never seen I've never even heard of that film. I definitely want to check that out. It, it looks really cool and weird. It's it's very yeah. It's a really interesting kind of take on the, the the genre of uh the kind of ideas of to- it takes the idea of toy story and kind of takes it in its own weird and wacky direction um and also uh kirsten dunst is in it um a younger kirsten dunst she's really great um and tommy lee jones who voices one of the main uh toy soldiers in the film is just absolutely wonderful in the role i think he's he's so brilliant uh, so yeah, so that is my honourable mention. It is time for the big leagues. It is the number one film. So Ethan, take it away. Yeah, so my number one, um, there was no question that this is going to be number one. It rotates for my favourite film of all time. Um, I kind of have two. This one, if you catch me on a certain day, this will be my favourite film of all time. Um, it's a film that I saw when I was probably too young to watch it, um, but then kind of defined my tastes and definitely sent me on this kind of rabbit hole of just w- wanting to watch everything that came out that's vaguely similar. Um, it's Reservoir Dogs, uh, Quentin Tarantino's first feature-length film. Um, I think I love this film so much because, you know... D- I am the toxic Tarantino fanboy. Like I, I've kind of just kind of embraced it as part of my life now. Um, I love everything he's done. Um, even some of the stuff that's kind of less critically acclaimed. Um, I still think that his style is, you know, just unquestionable. And, and he, you know, if David Finch is my favorite, I think Tarantino is probably second number two uh, or three. Um, but I think Reservoir Dogs is such an interesting film because it's Tarantino stripped back to kind of his bare essentials. It's, it's a film that could easily be a play. And I think that's the kind of, you know, I think it was announced last year that Tarantino's making Once Upon a Time in Hollywood into a novel. And I think a lot of kind of Tarantino's later work 
has a more kind of uh, lit, uh, literary feel to it in you know the, the going back and forth in time and the big set pieces and the big kind of jumps in location but Reservoir Dogs is just you know it's a genius concept in that he had a really low budget so he made a heist film where you don't see the heist um, but then the fact that it is like a play it's this film that's predominantly set in one massive room with all these actors at the top of their game actors that I think are the best when Tarantino's directing them someone like Tim Robbins um is that his name no it's not Tim Robbins what's, uh, what's it name? is and I can tell you uh, Tim Roth Tim Roth oh, that's the one yeah Tim Roth yeah yeah um you know he's an actor who his his he's a he's a fine actor like I, I you know I, I've never seen him be terrible in anything like he was in the Hulk movie which wasn't great but you know he in Tarantino films he just kind of is elevated to such a degree and and you know his kind of dying acting in this movie is you know when I show people Reservoir Dogs they're a bit like oh he's a bit kind of hamming it up I think that's why it's so good it's it's Tarantino's style of a film that sort of knows it's a film and it's a it's playing on the kind of tropes of heist movies which is a genre of film that I love and um you know at its core it's it's just this story of like fatherhood I think Tarantino said you know the, the relationship between Harvey Keitel's character and Tim Roth's character uh, you get the flashbacks to him you know obviously being a cop and and then just more than that like I said it's Tarantino before he became Tarantino almost but the, the seeds are there the the kind of uh, extravagant violence and the music and the kind of uh, directing style um, are all there but just kind of in its infancy and in a stage that hasn't really been corrupted or or like uh you know Tarantino-ified um I think um yeah it's just it's a great film that I would recommend anyone watch yeah I think um one of the you know the best things about Quentin Tarantino is uh you know sometime I think you know his writing style is just so wonderful and how you say that like it you know it feels like a play and uh, I think a lot of his uh films do feel like that especially The Hateful Eight I um watched The Hateful Eight uh and not when it came out, but quite uh, about a couple of years ago, uh, I remember watching that. And that was one of the first Tarantino films I'd ever seen. And I was just like absolutely blown away by it because I'm a, a big lover of theater. I, I love, I love people hamming it up. I love the over, the overacting, um, you know, it's just so wonderful. And I think that is, that is what is best about Tarantino movies. Um, and, you know, if it wasn't for Tim Roth being in Reservoir Dogs, he wouldn't have gone on to do what is arguably his best performance in a Tarantino movie as Oswaldo in, in The Hateful Eight. Uh, he's so, I just believe that Tim Roth is so wonderful in that movie. Um, but yeah, Tarantino's a great, a great director. Um, he might have indulged himself a bit too much in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but uh, Reservoir Dogs is definitely um, him at his... Uh, succinct best yeah and I think I think it's, it's such a short film as well I think it's only like 94 minutes long or something like that um, and the amount of kind of story and like character moments he packs into this really short film just that first scene of all the all the gangsters around the table just like you know in terms of a director's first ever thing that you see of him that scene of just these four these like eight guys talking about a Madonna song around the table and then the Steve Buscemi kind of riff on tipping and the fact that that's kind of you know you're sat in in the film festival or the cinema or whatever in 1994 
or 92 or whenever it or 91 whenever it was watching that film for the first time and you and you hear these like this like musical dialogue coming out of these characters mouths it must have been amazing and and that's kind of what I latch on to I think about Tarantino is the fact that you know he takes a simple scene of, of eight guys around a table and you're latching onto every single word you can't stop listening to these people talk um I agree with what you said about the hateful eight like I think that was you know as as a huge Reservoir Dogs fan I, I think I watched the film when I was 14 um so that would have been 10 years ago and then reading the reviews of the hateful eight and people saying like oh it's, it's kind of his return to the Reservoir Dogs style it definitely got me really excited and just seeing him kind of evolve the format almost you know that the hateful eight's a movie shot in 70 mil that's all set inside it's kind of this four-part story that he's eventually you know he's like actually broken up into four parts and the fact that he you kind of see his progression from this like really stripped back version to the kind of full uh you know this is probably the, the hateful eight is probably the movie he wanted to make in the 90s but he couldn't because of like budget constraints yeah um and then even you know I can see what you why you'd say once upon a time in Hollywood was indulgent, but I think that's kind of his like if if the hateful eight is his reservoir dogs part two, then once upon a time in Hollywood is almost his like pulp fiction part two. And I in this list I kind of tried to um only do one film per director because otherwise I would have had pulp fiction on this list too. Um because again, that is, you know, it's another perfect movie. But I think Reservoir Dogs is just its simplicity is its like greatest strength. My number one um is actually uh quite interesting because um the actor in this film uh is also the actor in my uh, worst pick of the 90s uh that is of course jim carrey um and i this again like you said for you for reservoir dogs uh when if, when i think of the 90s i think of this film instantly um it'll always be number one for me um and that is the truman show the Truman Show is such a wonderful film for so many reasons. It's Jim Carrey kind of uh, sort of uh, stepping back from his usual comic performance. Um, I personally enjoy Jim Carrey in his more serious roles like Eternal Sunshine and, and the kind. Uh, and The Truman Show is no different to that. Um, I think he is so wonderful in in that film I, he's just so brilliant and uh, the thing i love the most about the truman show is it kind of it was a very much ahead of its time in kind of predicting or sort of at least showing us how we consume media and how actually we're so obsessed with um you know reality tv and how obsessed we are with knowing every, you know knowing everything about somebody who we don't actually even know in real life um and i think it just sends that message across so well and the you know the conflict that um that uh, truman goes through in the um throughout the film and then obviously the decisions that he makes towards the end of the movie uh just is is so so wonderful uh, but yeah, I I adore it. It's amazing. It's um, it probably was, it was a film that was in my list of twenty, and it's a film that kind of floats around like my top twenty of all time. Definitely, it's um, yeah. I mean, I think you've covered it pretty well. It's it's definitely ahead of its time story wise, um, but I think the ideas in it are kind of you know evergreen in a way. It's it's 
it's one of those, and I think it's the kind of film that Jim Carrey does best in. Like you say, it's a bit more serious, but he is able to kind of elevate a, a serious script just by who he is as an actor and, and his, you know, his style and, and this innate sense of humor he has. And one of those films like Liar Liar or even Yes Man and to an extent Bruce Almighty, where they're not like as rolled on the floor laughing as, as something like Ace Ventura, but just the fact that Jim Carrey's in them makes them naturally a bit funnier. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think you've kind of covered everything that I have to say about The Truman Show too. It's just a kind of great encapsulation of a, a kind of era and and a, a look forward into kind of what would happen next. And something that I don't think could ever be remade because it's so kind of, the, the idea, like the ideas in it are relevant today, but the way they're executed is so primitive that it, predicts everything that would come later like you couldn't do a, a social media version of the Truman Show because I just don't think it would I think it would just be too obvious um, yeah compared exactly. to the original I mean I think I think the Truman Show like-esque stuff has happened now so much in real life and there's been so many reality tv shows um, and rehashes of of all these different things where we are literally given access to these people's personal lives and uh, you know complete like control over you know whether uh, th you know things that they can't control um you're right i think that it's kind of too meta within itself now that we as a society already do it so much now in real life that if it was made again it, it would just kind of be a bit of a joke i suppose um, i also think it's a beautifully shot film if uh you ever ask me what like my favorite shots are in a movie when he's walking up the stairs um towards the end i just like it's next level kind of gives you chills in a way it's really really great right that is it uh thank you very much for joining me it's been an absolute pleasure uh before we head off um is there anything you you want to plug is there anywhere we can find you um anything that you're doing at the moment yeah, I mean, I, uh, I'm i kind of a part-time write about films, I guess. I've done it a bit more in the past, but uh, I have a newsletter. Um, it's called Audiobook Fugazi. Uh, so if you just go to audiobookfugazi, or one word, .substack.com, you can subscribe to that. Uh, I write about films and music. Um, I'll probably write something to go along with this about one of the films on this list. And um, yeah, check it out. It's, uh, it's cool. Cool. Thank you very, very much. Cool, yeah, thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much for listening again to this episode of The Ranklist. We'll be back next week with another guest and another theme to sink our teeth into. Uh, of course, you can go and catch Ethan uh, on Twitter and you can also find his blog, a film blog, as well in the description of the podcast. You can also go and find my Twitter at Presenter Alex and you can also listen to my radio show on Bolton FM Film on Sunday where we've got lots of stuff coming up. I've just introduced a new feature uh, called Late to the Game where basically I watch and review films that I should have seen already but haven't. Um, so yeah, it's a, a lot of great fun. And I'm also going to be covering some uh, pretty cool festivals in March as well and that's all going to be through and exclusively with Bolton FM so do tune in for that as I said we'll be back next week at the same time as usual thank you very much for listening and see you later